Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March the 1st, 2023. Happy March. Um, from San Francisco, it's not a very happy March for the people of Ukraine. Um, of course, the war continues. Uh, it's more than a year now. Um, lots of headlines today. According to the New York Times, an epic battle of tanks. Uh, the Russians were routed. Um, according to Tony Blinken, the American Secretary of State, there's zero evidence that uh, Vladimir Putin is ready or interested in peace. Uh, the Chinese are getting involved. The crisis, the war is internationalizing. One Chinese leader is in uh, Belarus. And uh, the, according to the journal, uh, Chinese weapons could sustain Russia's war efforts uh, in Ukraine. Meanwhile, the Europeans are floating a defense pact with Ukraine, again, threatening, I think, to internationalize the conflict, which is already profoundly international. So what should America do and what should Americans uh, think about the war? Most people here believe that the U.S. has a moral obligation, I think, above all else to become involved. Um, Brett Stevens wrote a strong piece in The New York Times today. Brett Stevens has been on the show suggesting that Joe Biden and Stevens is a Republican mostly, that Biden has outshone Macron, Schultz and DeSantis on his commitment to Ukraine. Uh, Martin Wolf, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, one of the world's leading economic correspondents, um, believes that the West must give Ukraine what it needs. He wrote that in today's Financial Times. And the New York Times features a, a piece on uh, the writer and filmmaker Bernard-Henri Levy, who um, has a new movie out about his um, commitment to the war in Ukraine. He believes that uh, there will be a heavy price if the West fails to defeat Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. But not everybody, I think, is in the Levy-Wolf-Brett Stevens camp. And that extends from obviously left and right. Not all these people share the same politics. My guest today has a very different take, I think, on this. Um, it's an unusual take and a minority take, but not an insignificant one. Uh, Benjamin Abelow has uh, a self-published book, How the West Brought War to Ukraine, which is doing extremely well, uh, has almost 500 ratings on Amazon, and now it's being translated into Slovenian and Polish and Italian and German. And he's joining us today from Western Massachusetts. Uh, ben, uh, welcome. It's a very radical statement, How the West brought war to Ukraine. Are you blaming the West on this war in Ukraine? Uh, yeah, let me start by saying that uh, within the current cultural context, it can be seen as radical, but the book is actually not radical. Uh, in fact, that's manifest by the endorsements on the book. I have endorsements from a range of experts, uh, both within the State Department, former officials. I have an endorsement from Jack, Mat Jack Matlock, who was former U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union and actually helped negotiate the end of the Cold War. I have endorsements from academics, including John Mearsheimer and Richard Sakwa, uh, from previous 
Assistant Secretary of Defense, Chaz Freeman, who was also ambassador to uh, Saudi Arabia and other experts. So in some sense, what I've actually done in this book is channeled a set of expert opinions and views that are really being shut out of the mainstream media and are certainly being suppressed by the Washington foreign policy elite. Although, to be uh, fair, Benjamin, I mean, you're not speaking on behalf of Amir Scheimer is another very controversial figure, more of a mainstream person than you. You're not a foreign policy professional. Amir Scheimer is. Uh, but you're not necessarily simply re um, reflecting or representing what they're saying. This is your book and your views, right? Yes, very true. Uh, at the same time, I think I'm also presenting a set of views that are consistent with views that are presented by other experts and not just Mearsheimer, as I said, uh, Jet Macklock is quite a mainstream figure, as is Chaz Freeman and others. Okay. And uh, I mean, when I said you were radical, I actually meant that as a compliment. So I wouldn't oh, take it. Okay. Too, I, I wouldn't yeah. take it too um, uh, too personally. I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But anyway, back to my uh, opening question: How the West brought war to Ukraine? Um, are you arguing that that the West is responsible for this war in Ukraine? Uh, in some sense, yes. Uh, first, the sense in which no is that obviously Vladimir Putin and the Russian foreign policy and military elite initiated this war. And I do believe they probably had other options. Uh, at the same time, anytime one looks at an historical event, including a war, one can't simply look at the moment that the war is initiated or even the month or two before. One has to go back in time and look at the set of events that led up to that situation and may have uh, pushed uh, the foreign leader or leaders to uh, feel that they needed to initiate the war. So if you look at the proximate or the immediate causes, those were certainly decisions that were made within Russia internally. If you want to take a broader view, which is I think necessary, then the blame becomes much less focused and one can find deep causes, uh, including some that really just went back a month or two before the war started, in which the West bears a great deal of responsibility for the war. What do you make then of the emotional commitment of, of everyone from Brett Stevens, who's a Republican, I mean, a traditional Republican, Martin Wolf, uh, very much of a, a centrist economist, and then philosophers like uh, Henri Lévy, who's obviously on the left. Um, are they just deluded? Are they selfish? What, what's the problem with the fact that most people, particularly intellectuals uh, and experts in the West, in the United States, uh, would strongly disagree with you? Uh, yeah, first of all, in, in terms of any given individual, uh, I can't speak for them. Every, every person may have their own particular constellation of factors or influences or internal thought processes or values or psychology that may have led them to this. Uh, but I think I can speak broadly. Uh, and there are a number of trends that are happening within the West and especially within the U.S. that in important respects, both directly, culturally and through NATO, in which is the dominant uh, member and some would actually say the the driving uh, force behind it um, that have pushed us in this direction. Uh, number one, you have uh, what's often referred to as the military industrial complex. Uh, uh, now this term, which some people sort of associate with a kind of pacifist or traditional left, actually, as many people realize, of course, originated with um, uh, Eisenhower, 
uh, and he felt that it was important enough to warn the American public about the undue influence of the military industrial complex that he actually spoke about it in his final televised address, his farewell address. And that influence has become even more substantial since Eisenhower left. And this uh, military industrial complex, and we can speak about it in more detail of what that means if you want, but in a broad sense, it has tilted the entire playing field towards war-related solutions. And I think this has deeply influenced the culture. The voices that we hear that are amplified are voices that tend to promote war, tend to promote the interests, the bureaucratic interests of the military, that tend to promote the financial interests of the arms industry. And also, we also have to keep in mind, of course, that the Congress plays a very important role in this. They're uh, deeply influenced by financial contributions. And in fact, this last fact was actually recognized apparently by Eisenhower himself, uh, although it's not been, there's no verified evidence of this, the sort of the scuttlebutt is that he actually wanted to term this the military industrial congressional complex, but that some of his advisors basically said, you can't say that. That's that's way too extreme. Let's just stick with military. Industrial uh, I mean, complex. I take your point, Ben, on the military industrial complex. And we can go back to Eisenhower, of course, but that was a long time ago. Are you but but, but if you use that kind of argument, you, you can suggest that any war is in the interest of the military industrial complex. So should we, we should always be against them. Are there any wars since the Second World War, or even before the Second World War, that you would retrospectively support? Uh, you know, first, let me say I, I'm not a pacifist. Uh, I think there can be wars that need to be fought, uh, even terrible wars in which there's significant collateral damage. One can argue that certain wars need to be fought. Now, whether there are any wars since the World War, since World War II that actually fall into that category from the U.S. perspective, uh, I don't want to give a global answer. My immediate sense is probably not, but there, if there are, they're certainly limited. Um, uh, I understand your point that one can sort of say that the military-industrial complex, that can be used to wipe away all wars, uh, but I'm not, I'm not arguing for that position. I'm saying that the where we are right now, and certainly since the wars that have started with Iraq, uh, it's uh, this has been an important influence. And one can see that, for instance, even within the direct financial conflicts of interest that exist. Of course, there was Halliburton within the with the um, Iraq war, uh, and even within this war. Although, again, there may be complex interests at play. If one looks at the actual background of our current Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. He was on the board of directors at Raytheon, which is a major manufacturer of many of the weapons that are being used now. Uh, and I believe that through the sale of stock options that he received while on the board, uh, he probably made over a million dollars from his connections with Raytheon. It's interesting that the criticism of, you know, the, there is some criticism of U.S. involvement in the war. There were two rallies last week in, in D.C., one against, one in favor. It seems to bring together the left. There was an interesting piece in Jacobin magazine about, and this is the standard leftist critique of U.S. foreign policy. The headline was a U.S.-backed far-right-led revolution in Ukraine helped bring us to the brink of war. And then a more traditional right-wing critique with, from somebody like Tulsi Gabbard, um, Politically, is this bringing together the the beginnings of, of, of opposition to U.S. involvement in, 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 in Ukraine? Does it bring together both conservatives, perhaps conservative isolationists, 
and uh, left-wing critics of the industrial military complex? Uh, yeah, first of all, I just would want to take issue with the term isolationist. I think there's a difference between isolationism as a global policy versus a concept of uh, avoiding unnecessary and dangerous interventions. So I just want to distinguish between that. As far as the, the point that I think you're gesturing toward, uh, I think in some sense, yes, and I certainly hope so. I mean, right now, from what I can see, there's a kind of a broad coalition between, I don't know if I'd call it the far left and the far right or the moderate left and the moderate right, but there certainly seems to be a kind of absent middle which uh, my hope is, of course, that there's a kind of creep towards uh, a broad kind of across the political spectrum consensus against this war, because I think it deserves such a consensus. Well, let's let's get to the details, because it's very, very controversial, Ben, as you know. Um, obviously, in, in Ukraine and in Europe, your position, I think, would elicit huge amounts of controversy. But in the United States, are, are, could you you you. Could you go through your argument? Um, it, the, the standard, my understanding of Mearsheimer is that the U.S. made a mistake in suggesting Ukrainian membership of, of NATO. How does the NATO piece play into this? Uh, I would say that, first of all, I think there's a complex constellation of factors. But if I had to sort of pick one, uh, both as the individually most significant and also the one that we can kind of use as a peg to hang the others on, I would talk about NATO expansion. You know, right now, within the current political context and culture, uh, the idea that NATO expansion has is the underlying cause of what we're the disaster that we're now seeing in Ukraine has been criticized and actually ridiculed, uh, which is really quite extraordinary because if you go back, uh, you can find very clear statements, not just individual statements, but actually institutions within the U.S. intelligence establishment going back 25 years, almost predicting the course of events that we've seen. Uh, so just very briefly, I'm going to survey these very fast uh, and we can talk about any one in more detail if you want. But going back 25 years, there was an open letter published in 1997 uh, before the first tranche of NATO expansion, which occurred in 1999, by 50 U.S. experts, including individuals on the uh, really uh, fairly blatant hawks, including Richard Pipes, the crusading Harvard anti-communist, uh, and uh, Paul Nitze, the uh, past Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Navy, um, who was actually the author of a document called NSC 68, which basically resulted in the militarization of U.S. policy during the Cold War. And these individuals basically came right out and almost in these words said that the expansion of NATO will be a disaster. Uh, uh, George F. Kennan, who was also the founder of the uh, policy, U.S. policy of containment, also published twice in the New York Times, once in an op-ed and once in an interview with Thomas Friedman, that this would be the worst policy decision of the entire post-Cold War period. Uh, then in 2008, George... So, uh, so William why? Because it brought out the paranoia in Russia. What's wrong with a NATO expansion if Ukraine wants to become part of NATO, obviously? Yeah, it, it's not just paranoia. I mean, if you look at how the U.S. would respond, if anything comparable had happened uh, approaching and then on U.S. borders, the U.S. probably would have gone to war, too. Uh, I mean, the U.S. has what's called the Monroe Doctrine, which has gone through a series of understandings of what that actually entails, 
uh, since it was uh, initially sort of postulated. Yeah, but that's from 1850. I mean, uh, would you make a comparison with Cuba and the Bay uh, and and and, yeah. and the and the missile crisis there? Is that the equivalent in your mind between what's happening in Ukraine? I, I think there are similarities, but uh, and, and you're right. Yes, the uh, Monroe Doctrine, of course, is an older doctrine, but I think it's still often referred to in an informal sense to justify the kind of policies that led John Kennedy to set up a naval blockade. So, are you Cuba. suggesting that the U.S. has the Monroe Doctrine, which essentially means that it will go to war if it, someone is in in the in the Americas if they feel under threat? That there should be an equivalent Russian. Monroe Doctrine in Eastern Europe? Uh, I don't know if I would say that there should be such a doctrine, but I would say that the Monroe Doctrine, as it's currently understood by most people, basically enshrines a concept that where a potential opponent, especially a p opponent from outside the hemisphere, places its military forces, the location and the proximity of those forces to one's border is of decisive importance. Now, NATO uh, basically is surrounding Russia. Uh, and if you look at some of the specific military exercises, these are things that had they been done, for instance, on the U.S. border with Canada, the U.S. certainly would have gone, uh, you know, to use an informal term, ballistic and might well have gone to war over. Let me give one specific example. So in 2020 and 2021, NATO carried out a series of live fire rocket exercises in Estonia which, as everyone knows, is a small country on the western border of uh, Russia. Uh, now, these exercises were carried out. The missiles were launched 70 miles from Russia's border uh, with missiles that had a range of approaching 200 miles and could easily penetrate well into Russian territory. Now, uh, the specific stated purpose of the exercise in 2021 was to practice destroying defensive targets inside of Russia, in particular, air defense targets inside Russia. Now, one could only imagine what would happen if Russia or China had established a political military alliance with, for example, Canada, and then 70 miles from the U.S. border, using missiles with ranges of 200 right. miles, had carried, out right. had, car had carried out exercises with the avowed intent of destroying air defense targets inside Russia, one can get some sense of how the U.S. might respond. I, I take your point on that, but Canada isn't Estonia. There's a long history of animosity between the Baltic states and Russia, as well as, of course, with the Ukraine. So this equivalent of, well, if if if, if the Russians or the Chinese had missiles in Canada is, is 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 a little absurd because it would never it would never happen. America has never invaded Canada and isn't likely to. So th there are profound differences between the Baltics or Ukraine and their relations with Russia and U.S. relations with Canada, aren't there? Uh, certainly there are differences. I mean, first of all, I think that many of the differences that are now assumed to exist between, let's say, Eastern European or Baltic countries and Russia actually have their origins back in the Soviet Union and back to Soviet days. One of the points that uh, George F. Kennan made uh, in his uh, opposition to NATO expansion was that Russia and the Soviet Union are not the same thing, and we make a serious mistake to conflate them. Uh, he actually made the statement that it's almost unbelievable that we in the United States uh, are now confronted with 
the group of people who carried out the, the greatest bloodless revolution in the history of humanity, those individuals who overthrew the Soviet Union or basically subverted it from the inside. And we are now treating those people as enemies and carrying out the expansion of NATO directed against them. Uh, and turning people that need not be enemies into people who feel confronted by U.S. military and Western military force. So uh, I think that's that's important. Number two, the the, the obviously there, there are differences between the situation with the U.S., the Canada example and the example I gave. I would call them sort of analogies in different respects. Uh, and one important respect, for instance, is that the U.S. is surrounded by water, has a very different geopolitical situation than the European or the Baltic countries. Uh, nonetheless, I think that the U.S. situation is enlightening and it provides insight into how a country responds when it's surrounded by a potential opponent from outside the area. There's a concept within political science called the uh, uh, security dilemma, which basically is a, a common sense concept that I think we all take for granted. The idea basically is that when one country takes an action that it perceives to be defensive, the other country against which it is directed can perceive that to be an offensive threat. Then that other country that perceives the offensive threat can then take actions that it perceives as defensive that the initiating country then perceives as offensive. And it creates sort of an ongoing cycle of escalation. And I think we are seeing that on the Russian border. And I think that if one wanted sort of conceptually to look at the underlying cause of this war, that is it. And if one wants to place a blame on the West for this, I think one could say that the Western powers, and in particular driven by the United States, both directly through its bilateral relations with Ukraine and also through its driving power in NATO, has in essence completely disregarded the concept of the security dilemma. Um, so that leaves, of course, Putin. We've done many shows on Putin about what he's up to, what's happening in his mind, lots of analyses of one kind or another. You argue in your book that um, Putin isn't an insatiable Hitler-like expansionist. Why? What's going on in, 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 in Putin's mind? Are you presenting him almost as a rational actor, as someone who has been forced into invading Ukraine because of the West's NATO expansion eastwards? Is that your argument, that there's um, something I, rational I, about I, Putin? OK, I take your point. He's not Hitler, but I don't want to fall into the morass of, of, of the Hitler stuff because it becomes absurd. Um, there are many evil people in the world who aren't like Hitler and many irrational people in the world who don't behave like Hitler. What, what is Why is Putin doing this? He could have done all sorts of other things in terms of dealing with this situation on the diplomatic front. Why did he actually choose to invade Ukraine? Yeah, first of all, I don't want to go so far as to say he was forced into it. But I think I would say very clearly that from his perspective and probably the perspective of a certain element in the Russian military and political elite, Russia was backed into a corner. From, uh, so I think that it can, that can be said. <clears throat> the extent to which there were other options that were allow available to him, I think there probably were some. Uh, and in this sense, I don't see that he was, quote unquote, directly forced into war. And I truly wish he had taken some of those other steps. Now, whether those steps would have succeeded in helping him achieve what he perceived to be Russia's legitimate security concerns, I don't know. Frankly, I'm dubious. Uh, because Russia did try very hard to try to bring about changes in NATO policy 
uh, well before the war started, including in the month before the war started uh, or the month and a half before the war started. For example, in December 2021, uh, Russia and specifically Putin made specific proposals to individual proposals to both NATO and to the United States uh, regarding the question of the uh, non-alignment of Ukraine with respect to NATO. And in both cases, those uh, uh, proposals were categorically rejected by the United States. Uh, this has come out in statements from the, is a position in the government called the, the counselor of the Secretary of State, a man named Derek Chalet in the yeah, uh, Military Derek. Insider. Yeah, he made explicit statements on the War in the Rocks uh, podcast that uh, the West had categorically rejected any discussion about the question of NATO they said this is a unilateral. Okay, I tell you, yeah, yeah, I know you've got all these arguments, but what about Putin? He didn't need to invade. There are all sorts of ways of of, of countering <laughs> diplomatically. Why did he invade Ukraine? Is it, it could could the argument be, Benjamin, that um, he's as much a prisoner of what you call the military industrial complex in Russia as supposedly Biden is in the United States? Uh, I think there is a military industrial complex in Russia, but I think it plays somewhat of a different role. Uh, I think we all recognize that Russia is, although I don't want to use the, Russia is certainly not totalitarian in, in this sense. I think people should also be hesitant to even use the terms like hard authoritarian. I think the terms like soft authoritarian are probably closer to the truth for Russia. Although, unfortunately, oh, it, may it be doesn't seem very soft to me. I mean, are some of the prisoners yeah. in their in their in their camps? Um, you you mentioned coming back to this think, question of why he chose to invade, why he sent his his army into Ukraine, why? Yeah, I, I think it's it's two things. Number one, I think he felt increasingly that there was a likelihood that Ukraine would join NATO. The uh, NATO had itself in 2021 reaffirmed the 2008 statement that Ukraine will join NATO. Then the US in both independently negotiated uh, treaties with uh, Ukraine, both one by the State Department and one by the Defense Department, uh, made independent bilateral commitments to Ukraine to work towards bringing it toward NATO military standards. Uh, and those were made, I believe, in August and November 2021. Uh, so there was a move within the U.S., especially since the Biden administration came into play, to more and more militarize Ukraine and a move within NATO, more and more to move it into NATO and to take action on the 2008 uh, uh, Bucharest Memorandum that was the initial open door policy. Uh, so number two, you have to keep in mind that there are sort of independent progressions that were occurring in terms of arms control. So for instance, uh, you know, coming on the heels of the 2002, uh, breaking out of the, uh, ABM treaty by George W. Bush, there was the placement of anti-ballistic missiles and anti-ballistic missile systems in Poland and Romania. And there was a concern those might eventually be placed in Ukraine. Now those missiles carry launch tubes that are uh, in, initially set up to carry ABM or anti-ballistic missiles, but the M40, MK-41 launchers, also called the Aegis Ashore launchers, are also capable of carrying Tomahawk nuclear-tipped cruise missiles. Uh, and those can be replaced in the tubes within 24 hours. Now, those were set up uh, in Eastern Europe. So I think there's ongoing concerns about that. At the same time, under Trump in 2019, the U.S. unilaterally broke out 
of the uh, 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty that prescribed the placement of uh, land-based nuclear weapons with a range between 500 and, and 5,500 kilometers. Uh, so that was an independent move. And there were, of course, accusations that, the, that Russia treated, cheated, just as the, Russia had accused the U.S. of cheating. But the important point is that the U.S. refused to even negotiate it with it. And it appears, based on uh, documentation of what went on within the U.S. military establishment, that the branches of the U.S. military were actually competing for control over those weapons. Uh, and there were in, uh, bureaucratic infighting over who would have control. So I think there was sort of an ongoing movement of both uh, abrogation of arms control treaties and questions of nuclear arming and basically a re-entry into the nuclear okay, arms race. So you're at the same sort time. of half explaining it, maybe a little bit justifying it, but they invaded for better or worse. I think from my point of view, certainly for the worse. Um, I agree. With it. So from my point of view also, where do you stand my, now my on, uh, on, the, the on our... Uh, "Quote unquote moral responsibility in the West, as as we said at the beginning, Stevens is strongly in uh, in favor of giving Ukraine what it needs. So's uh, Martin Wolf. So certainly Bernard uh, Henri Levy, and many other people have been on the show. What what do you think? But I mean, what's the war has happened for better or worse? The invasion in now has has lasted a year. Um, don't we in the West now, given Russian war crimes?" Um, and Russian Russian behavior. Don't we have a moral responsibility to arm and defend Ukraine? Uh, yeah. Before I respond, I just want to agree with you that I also uh, feel strongly that it is a disaster that Putin did launch this war. And I, nothing I say here is intended to sort of make that war okay. Uh, even though I do believe to some extent he and the Russian military and political elite may have forced, felt forced into this. Uh, now, as far as what should be done now, uh, I think that what is needed right now is, number one, an immediate ceasefire and then an attempt to negotiate the best possible settlement coming on the heels of that. It has been increasingly recognized, both within the Washington mainstream and within the think tank establishment, that there, there will not be a victory by Ukraine. For instance, just two weeks ago or three weeks ago, the RAND Corporation, a think tank uh, that is funded by the U.S. military, came out with a remarkable report that stated that a long war was not in the U.S. interest. And the reason being that, number one, it would lead to an unacceptable risk of a direct NATO-Russia confrontation, and number two, an unacceptable risk of nuclear war. Uh, number two, in terms of Ukraine, the reality is that at every stage of this conflict, when one side or the other escalated, the other side did not back down, but then responded in turn by an additional reciprocal escalation. If you look at the beginning of this war, however one conceives it, it did, been, did not begin with infrastructure attacks by Russia and Ukraine. It began, and whatever the initial objectives were, whether one believes it was an attempt to overthrow the Ukrainian government and to kill Ukraine, or whether one wants to buy into the terminology of a special military operation, of simply a diversionary tactic to open up the Donbass, however one sees it, the reality was that it was not a shock and awe campaign. It was a very limited operation. Uh, and... Uh, that the escalations actually occurred after the attack on the... Kurds okay, but you haven't answered my question. How, how, uh, do you, are you suggesting then that the war should be brought to an end with Russia keeping some of the territory it seized after the invasion? Is that it? Uh, that, that seems to be 
a, a non-negotiable position on the part of the Ukrainians, which the Russians don't agree with. I mean, yeah, I, I think if if we go, if we Ukraine, whoever goes into this with a non-negotiable position that the territories that were obtained since February 24th, 2022, that none of those can be re- none of those can stay in Russian hands, then the war will continue more and more of Ukraine will be destroyed, more and more Ukrainian, both civilians and soldiers will be killed, and the risk of nuclear war will increase. So you're justifying, so in that sense, you think that Ukraine or the West should should settle, uh, that that your argument is that the war will go on unless we grant Russia control of territory it seized in 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 at least in terms of international law an illegal invasion. Yeah, I don't want to say that all of it should be assumed to be give, that will go to Russia's hands. I think that part of this will be a negotiation. But I nonetheless think that it is probably not facing reality if we are going to pretend that Russia is at this point going to give back everything obtained since, since, this, uh, since uh, February 24th, 2022. Further, the idea that Russia would give back Crimea which is a stated position now by Victoria Newland, the Undersecretary of Defense for Political Affairs, I think that is living in a fantasy. And uh, if the West actually is hell-bent on trying to carry that out and is going to arm Ukraine or enter into a direct uh, NATO-Russia war to obtain Crimea again, I think it's quite likely that we will see the Russian use of uh, tactical nuclear weapons because they are not going to give up Crimea. And I'm quite sure they're not going to give up all of the territories that they've obtained since the war started. The extent to which some territories might be obtainable through negotiation, I think, has to be seen. But the bottom line of all this is simply the matter of facing reality, that there is not going to be a Ukrainian victory in this war that does not result in massive, massive destruction, ongoing death and maiming of the Ukrainian population and of an unacceptable risk of direct NATO conflict and U.S.-Russia nuclear war. What about the argument that um, the longer the war goes on, the weaker Putin and his people are, the more likelihood there is of some sort of reshuffle or coup in Moscow itself, given the cost and the embarrassment of the war? Uh, yeah, first of all, I don't have, a, I don't have uh, as the cliche goes, uh, a crystal ball to read the future. Well, uh, you do when it suits know, you. I mean, so. Well, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I, I offer predictions as best as I can see them based on the evidence and the logic as I understand it. And that's the direction I'm going to go now. The direction I'm going to go now is that although it's always possible that such things might happen, I think it's unlikely and it's a, and it amounts to a kind of fantasy to make any policies based on an assumption that we can actually drive uh, Putin from power. I think the reality is that his position now is probably stronger than since the war started. We see the same phenomenon that we'd see in the West of a wartime leader whose popularity increases. In fact, I would even say that much of the opposition to to Putin within Ukraine, within um, Russia currently, has arisen from the Russian far right, the militaristic right, and not from the left. And the fact that he is now expanding the war with additional conscriptions and uh, taking more of a quote-unquote gloves-off approach has actually, to some extent, brought some of the, uh, uh, the far 
the, let's say the, the right, more right wing, more militaristic, nationalistic elements of the Russian government more behind Putin than it was before and less in terms of opposition. So I think if anything, his position is stronger now and it is a serious mistake to make any policies based on an assumption that we can drive Putin from power. Finally, Ben, what happens if Trump wins the nomination and Biden runs again and, and Trump, which wouldn't surprise me, Trump chooses to essentially appropriate your argument or the argument of your camp. Would you be troubled by that or would you be happy if in the debates uh, next year, Trump launches into Biden and articulates your position? Yeah, I mean, first of all, just to state what may be obvious or maybe not obvious and which unfortunately one based on the political context, really has to state, although I feel in some way I don't even want to have to state it. Uh, I did not vote for Mr. Yeah, and I'm not accusing you of being a Trumpist. No, I just just want to be clear. I'm not trying to put you on. Yeah, I don't want to put a MAGA Uh, cap on you. But my point is that it seems not inconceivable in the American context that Trump might pick up this argument and actually run with it and use it against Biden. Yeah, in fact, he has done that. Uh, I don't know the exact date, but just last night for the first time, I saw a brief video that he came out with basically making a global statement against a lot of what's going on right now. Uh, Not only the war in Ukraine and the militarization, the ongoing militarization of the war, but also trying to look at the deep causes, the influence of the military industrial complex on Congress and the military industrial complex itself. Uh, if Trump was elected and he did try to carry out some of those policies, I would see that as a good thing. Uh, I would need to know the very particular specifics of what he was going to implement as opposed to what he's talking about now before I issued any kind of global imprimatur of what, of what he has in mind. But I think that whatever one thinks of Trump in many respects, I think that in important respects, he has had some good intuitions about what is going on with the military industrial complex and the war in Ukraine. Uh, And that if he were elected and he tried to implement some of those intuitions and to do so in a way that would have been more effective than what he tried to do the first time around, I would see that as a positive thing, even though there are many respects in which I would see him as not the right president for the United States. Maybe he'll make you secretary of state, Ben. Would you take the job? Uh, No, certainly not. I might be able to uh, think of some others that I might want to suggest for that job, but I certainly wouldn't take it myself. I don't see myself as enough of an expert.